Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Patrick Callanan. For our feature today, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sanz talk about the carbon sequestration bill. Efforts to send a message that Indiana is open for business to renewables came to an abrupt halt on April 15th. A bill that would have established some statewide standards for wind and solar projects, but was amended to grandfather in counties' more restrictive ordinances, died on the Indiana Senate floor, according to Indy Star. Despite significant amendments that had House Bill 1381 doing a 180-degree turn and handing more authority back to local governments, Local control concerns still lingered, according to the bill's Senate sponsor, Mark Mesner, Republican from Jasper. On the Senate floor th- Tuesday night, after withdrawing the bill, Mesber said that handling the bill was akin to being in a, quote, hostage negotiation with a schizophrenic, end quote. He said he gave local officials everything they wanted and asked for, but the captor, quote, still shot the person at the end of the ordeal anyway, end quote. Energy groups, consumer advocates, environmentalists, and the business community all supported the legislation, saying it would bring significant investment to the state and help with Indiana's energy transition. But local officials and groups opposed the bill, raising concerns over home rule. Quote, it was worked to a completely different direction from when we brought it over from the House to being as local control as it could possibly be, end quote, Mesmer said to his colleagues. Matt Pierce, Democrat of Bloomington, who serves on the House Utilities Committee and supported the bill, said that, quote, usually when a bill stops moving like that, it means that the majority caucus decided they just didn't want to vote on it, likely feeling it was too controversial, end quote. Indiana environmental reporter predicts that brood X cicadas will soon be emerging from the ground in Indiana, a hot spot for these periodic insects, and experts are warning that some young trees may need protection to survive. The 17-year cicadas are coming, and that's especially important to people with new trees. New fruit trees are particularly susceptible to cicadas. Rebecca Kurtz, Lake County, Purdue University Extension Urban Agricultural Educator, explained, quote, Cicadas are harmless to humans and provide food for wildlife, but lay their eggs in new growth, and this can cause branches to die out, end quote. 
The best advice is to delay planting any new trees until after the cicadas leave and to cover young trees with insect netting while they're here, she added, noting that more mature trees can handle the damage. Larger trees do not need to be protected from cicadas. They may experience minor dieback at the tips of the branches, but this will not harm the overall health of the tree, Kurtz said. The goal is to prevent the cicadas from having access to the branches of young trees so that they will lay their eggs elsewhere. The 17-year cicadas, also known as Brood X, will emerge throughout Indiana, but the biggest populations will be in southern Indiana. Expect up to 1.5 million cicadas throughout the state during the coming emergence. Their last emergence in 2004 saw these insects appear in large numbers in Bloomington, Brookville, Clinton Falls, Dillsboro, Fishers, French Lick, Indianapolis, Lawrenceburg, Lexington, Martinsville, McCormick's Creek State Park, Nashville, North Vernon, Skiles Test Park, and Spencer. A good rule of thumb is to expect the cicadas to emerge around the same time as irises bloom. Cicadas need to feed on trees nearly constantly for most of their lives, drinking sap from tree roots. They are therefore typically found only in areas that had trees 17 years ago and have continued to have trees since then. Once every 17 years, they emerge, climb up trees, sing, mate, and lay their eggs on the tips of branches. Demonstrations took place on March 19th and 20th around the world to protest the deployment of 5G, described as the fifth generation of wireless, a technology that critics say poses health risks, encourages debris-generating satellite collisions, causes depletion of the ozone layer from the huge number of launches planned, and is a major factor in the weaponization of space. Telecommunications companies are advertising heavily to promote 5G to consumers. With the military component a large factor, the Pentagon has been pushing the technology hard also. Dr. Deborah Davis, founder and president of the Environmental Health Trust, says that the proposed 5G wireless installations will transmit radio frequency emissions that cause environmental pollution linked to cancer, DNA damage, neurological damage, and other adverse health and environmental effects, including on birds, bees, and trees. More than 400 scientists and thousands of physicians have called for an immediate moratorium on 5G. Davis went on to say, quote, Wired technologies such as fiber or coaxial cable are far superior to wireless as they are faster, more reliable, more resilient, more energy efficient, and significantly less hazardous to our health and to other life forms, end quote. Critics warn that 5G, the latest cellular technology, will use millimeter waves for the first time in addition to microwaves, which have been used for older cellular technologies, 2G through 4G. Given its limited reach, 5G will require cell antennas every 100 to 200 meters, exposing people to millimeter wave radiation. That's the installation of 800,000 or more new cell antenna sites in the U.S., close to where we live, work, and play. Florida and Texas are planning to release hordes of genetically engineered mosquitoes into those states. 
developed by Oxitec, a British biotechnology corporation, the mosquitoes would be released by the hundreds of millions. They are designed to mate with wild mosquitoes and then produce offspring, all the females of which die in the larval stage. The intent is to reduce mosquito populations with the aim of reducing mosquito-borne disease. Many serious questions remain unanswered with this project. There have been no endangered species assessments, no studies on human health impacts, and no environmental impact statement. Moreover, no studies have been done on the ability of the mosquitoes to actually reduce disease transmission, and Oxitec doesn't make such claims. So far, genetically engineered mosquitoes have been an expensive failure. Studies have shown that they're not sterile, and there's no evidence of their effectiveness in disease reduction. It's possible that their release will result in the spread of more mosquito-borne diseases. Florida plans to release over a billion genetically engineered mosquitoes into the Florida Keys, one of the state's most ecologically sensitive areas. Their release could have serious consequences, potentially creating more aggressive and virulent mosquitoes, impacting human health and threatening endangered species. According to the Organic Consumers Association, quote, People should not be unwittingly forced to be part of a risky experiment that benefits private biotech corporations. End quote. The New York Times reported that more than 300 businesses, including Google, McDonald's, and Walmart, are pushing the Biden administration to nearly double the U.S.'s target for cuts to planet warming emissions ahead of an April 22nd global summit on climate change. In a letter to President Biden, expected to be released April 14th, chief executive officers from some of the nation's largest companies will call on the administration to set a new Paris Agreement goal of slashing the nation's carbon dioxide, methane, and other planet warming emissions at least 50% below 2005 levels by 2030. That is roughly what most environmental groups want, and the corporate executives called the target ambitious and attainable. Former President Donald Trump pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement, eradicating emissions reduction targets set by the Obama administration that many environmentals had seen as too weak. President Obama had pledged to cut national emissions 26 to 28 percent below 2005 levels by 2025. They are ponds the size of city blocks, wastewater pits that hold the hazardous byproducts of coal, lagoons brimming with diluted pig excrement, vast pools atop stacks of radioactive tailings. The risks posed by pools of waste like these, a common feature at thousands of industrial and agricultural sites across the country, have been brought into sharp relief by a giant wastewater pond in Piney Point, Florida, that in recent days had appeared in danger of catastrophic failure. The New York Times reported that officials said the threat of collapse had passed and residents were allowed to return home after an emergency effort had pumped millions of gallons of water out of the pond and into local waterways. The environmental effects of such a large release of contaminated water remained unknown. This past weekend, the specter of a deluge had prompted the authorities to evacuate hundreds of people from their homes. 
Open-air ponds are vital to major industries, like livestock and power generation, but environmental groups say they pose major environmental health and safety risks, whether from mismanagement or increasingly from the effects of climate change. Indiana has the largest number of coal ash ponds of any state. Most are unlined and many are in 100-year floodplains. Many contaminate groundwater in the nearby area. The governors of Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, and Delaware have voted unanimously to permanently ban fracking from the Delaware River Basin. The vote follows years of advocacy and agitation from area residents and environmental organizations. The governors who voted for the ban represent 48 million people in some of the nation's most heavily populated states, including Pennsylvania, the epicenter of the natural gas industry. Almost half of the basin sits on top of the natural gas-rich Marcellus Shale, and the fossil fuel industry was looking forward to installing up to 4,000 wells in its soil. People around the country are revolting against fracking, and the toxic chemicals from which pollute the air and water and are linked to increased rates of respiratory illness, cancer, and pregnancy complications. Methane, the primary component of fracked gas, traps 87 times more heat than carbon dioxide in its first 20 years in the atmosphere, and its contribution to heating the earth is growing quickly. The less of it that's released into the atmosphere, the better the chances of limiting climate disaster. The Natural Resources Defense Council found that protecting the Delaware River Basin from fracking would support 600,000 jobs, bringing in $12 billion in annual wages, whereas fracking jobs would only bring in about a fourth that amount. In his latest documentary, 27-year-old British filmmaker Ali Tabrizi calls out the commercial fishing industry for harming oceans in the pursuit of fish. Since its release, the polarizing film has gone viral and climbed to Netflix's top ten across the globe. The expose has sparked countless questions about and investigation into the seafood industry's claims and practices. The review said Seaspiracy connects all the dots between commercial fishing, ocean destruction, and slavery with a wobbly line and the indictment of the myth of sustainability. With each new scene, Tabrizi reveals fraud, corruption, and greed currently destroying the ocean. Through figures and expert cameos, he claims, discarded fishing gear accounts for most ocean debris and is killing whales and other animals. The oceans will be emptied of fish in 27 years. Safe seafood labels are compromised by pay-to-play profit structures and lack enforcement. Overfishing is more damaging to the environment than deforestation. It's surprising the film has made an impression. The characterizations have been true for 30 years. Nothing is ever done to correct the problems. A new assessment by the International Union for Conservation of Nature shows that elephants in Africa are even closer to extinction than previously thought. The studies recognize two distinct African elephant species, savanna and forest. 
Savannah elephants have declined by more than 50% in 75 years, forest elements by a shocking 80% in less than a century. Both are threatened by ivory poaching and habitat loss. Quote, forest elephants are finally getting the recognition they deserve, end quote, said Tanya Sanarib at the Center for Biological Diversity. Now we have to end the poaching of these desperately imperiled animals. And now for our feature today, we will hear IER reporter Enrique Sanz talk about the carbon sequestration bill. An amendment attached to a bill originally intended to establish the foundations for a carbon market registration program in Indiana threatens to sink the bill in its current form. Senate Bill 373 seeks to establish a carbon market registration program that facilitates carbon market trading in the state and to allow the President Benjamin Harrison Conservation Trust Fund to take part. An amendment introduced by Representative Alan Morrison and approved by the House Natural Resources Committee could now offer legal protections to an ammonia and hydrogen manufacturing company vying for the right to participate in a pilot program to store carbon underground. Morrison's amendment would allow Wabash Valley Resources LLC, a company authorized by the state legislature to drill into the ground and inject carbon dioxide for storage to use a rare permit issued by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency as a legal defense. The permit would offer legal protection known as an affirmative defense in some civil lawsuits brought against the company. The Class 6 permit is required to begin storing carbon underground and has not yet been issued to the company by the EPA. The defense would give landowners who sue Wabash Valley Resources an additional barrier to overcome in order to prove their claims. Here's what Morrison said when introducing the bill to the House Natural Resources Committee. So what this bill says um, is ultimately, uh, or this amendment, excuse me, um, is it is giving them some li- some some liability, giving them uh, a release from a liability. From if that if that CO2 goes underneath a um, some property that was not expected or even expected, that they cannot be sued for perception or stigma reasons, um, and and what they're looking for, what we're looking for with this with the, with this amendment is um, to not be sued for something that you didn't do. Um, now, if there is actual property damage or physical damage. Um, lawsuits can still be brought and people can still be um, held liable for them. Um, But just the actual existence of this product 8,000 feet below your your property um, is not a, 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 a reason to be able to be sued. Critics of the bill said the amendment allows the private company to store carbon dioxide underneath Hoosier properties without compensation and insulates the company from liability. Many environmental, conservation, and advocacy groups that supported the original bill's intent said they could not support the bill with Morrison's amendment. This is Kerwin Olson, executive director of the Citizens Action Coalition. So first and foremost, we are putting the cart way ahead of the horse here. We have no understanding yet whatsoever of the impact uh, on our environment, on our water sources, on our community, uh, related to the long-term storage uh, of, of, of the underground storage of, of carbon dioxide in this supercritical, highly pressurized uh, state. And to be clear, uh, this project is, is they, they claim it's going to be the largest CO2 sequestration project ever in the United States, 50 times the size of what was done uh, in Illinois. And I find it hard to believe uh, that the federal government 
would require that states completely indemnify an entity from any liability in order to issue funding. And furthermore, I would think from a policy perspective, we should be very, very concerned uh, that a project would need uh, this type of immunity in order to move further. Carbon capture and sequestration is the process of capturing carbon dioxide produced from industrial sources, then injecting it into subsurface rock more than a mile underground for storage. The carbon sequestration process could extend the viability of fossil fuels as a power source for industrial generators by reducing the amount of carbon dioxide that enters the atmosphere, trapping heat and changing the Earth's climate. Nominally, carbon gas is captured from production facilities, compressed until it is a dense liquid, then injected at high pressures into geological formations more than a mile underground, where it is stored forever. But the pressure buildup resulting from the carbon sequestration injection process can cause earthquakes, and the liquid carbon dioxide and other liquids used to inject it can leak out of the sequestration area. High concentrations of carbon dioxide can be lethal to humans and animals. The EPA has said that those risks can be reduced through proper management and siting, but the risks would still exist. Groups who testified at the committee hearing said a Class 6 permit could not guarantee there would be no threat to the environment or personal property, and thus the legal protections in the amendment were not warranted. This is Tim Maloney, Senior Policy Director for the Hoosier Environmental Council. We think this um, liability uh, provision is over, very overly broad and, and not warranted. Second, um, Compliance with the Class 6 permit requirements does not guard against all possible negative impacts to the environment, to private property, and to health. And I'll just read very quickly one sentence uh, from a uh, Congressional Research Service report talking about EPA's um, Class 6 rule. And EPA says, uh, the agency identified specific policy areas related to geologic sequestration that are beyond the agency's authority including but not limited to capture and transport of CO2, managing human health and environmental risks other than drinking water endangerment, determining property rights and transfer of liability from one entity to the other. So even if we have faith that, that EPA will do a, a thorough job in their review of the class six permit, that doesn't guarantee that all impacts will be evaluated and considered. The Indiana legislature in 2019 passed a bill that provided a pathway for Wabash Valley Resources LLC, a company that produces ammonia for fertilizer and hydrogen, to receive a permit to drill and store carbon underground through the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. The company would, along with other requirements, need to receive a Class 6 permit from the EPA in order to inject carbon dioxide underground. The EPA has only ever issued two Class 6 well permits. The permit requires applicants to, among other things, detail the geologic setting of the site where injection will occur, provide evidence of financial responsibility, prepare testing and monitoring plans, and prepare strategies for the site in the event it is closed down. The permitting process is lengthy and the company has not received the permit two years after the passing of the bill and nearly a year and a half after receiving a drilling permit from DNR. Nalan Gupta, managing partner for Wabash Valley Resources, told the committee his company recently secured a $400 million federal loan that is contingent on getting the amendment passed. He told the committee that the placement of carbon dioxide thousands of feet below ground would affect landowners as little as an airplane flying overhead would. How many of us would actually sue an airplane that goes flies over your head for 8,000 feet? 
uh, it would basically mean that, oh, uh, airplane today is trespassing over our property. Several Supreme Court decisions have essentially told that an airplane that is doing public good is not uh, trespassing 8,000 feet above. However, if a drone is hovering 10 feet above your garden or your backyard, that is nuisance. So the differentiating factor here is don't take that concept above the air and then invert it. That is what we are asking. To the extent we are 8,000 feet below your property that has no use, uh, uh, that has no uh, reduction in enjoyment of your property, then we should be allowed to conduct that activity. However, to the extent that we do do something such that in, the, in my example, a drone uh, hovering over your uh, uh, backyard causing nuisance, then, then, then let us take the judicial process and prove your case and, and there is no indemnification that we seek uh, for that. But today, our funding is contingent on us getting this amendment passed. Two previous carbon capture and sequestration projects in Indiana were proposed but later failed. Duke Energy planned a carbon capture and sequestration project at its Edwardsport station, but the plan was abandoned due to its high cost. A carbon sequestration project at a coal gasification plant in Rockport was also abandoned. The bill passed the House Natural Resource Committee with Morrison's amendment and an amendment that would establish a study committee before any action is taken to establish the carbon market infrastructure. The bill was then transferred to the House Judiciary Committee where it passed 9-3. The bill will now be considered by the full House of Representatives. For Eco Report, I'm Patrick Callanan. Now for our events calendar. The Central Indiana Land Trust has created a Trek Our Trails Challenge, a self-guided program encouraging people to get out to five of the area nature preserves overseen by the Central Indiana Land Trust. The trails include the Laura Hare Preserve at Blossom Hollow, Burnett Woods, the Fred and Dorothy Meyer Nature Preserve, Meltzer Woods, and the Noni Warby Krause Nature Preserve. The challenge begins now through November 26th. To take part, take a photo of yourself at the trailhead and email your photos to smiller at conservingindiana.org. The Nature Sound Series kicks off this season on Friday, April 23rd, beginning at 6.30 p.m. at the Reverend Ernest D. Butler Park Picnic Shelter. The theme is Reduce, Reuse, Recycle, with Musical guest David Davila Gonzalez performing with instruments from recycled materials. Please continue to practice safe social distancing. McCormick's Creek State Park is hosting its annual 5K run walk on Saturday, April 24th, beginning at 8.30 a.m. The race winds through the park on paved roads, which allow social distancing. The race will be done in heats to keep all racers safe and healthy. For more information, contact Williams at 812-829-4344 or go to wwilliams at dnr.in.gov. Bloomington Restorations Incorporated invites you to the monthly Museum Open Day at the Hinkle Garten Farmstead. Open Day this year will be two days due to the Daisy Days native plant sale on Saturday, April 24th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. and on Sunday, April 25th from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Tours will also be available from 1 to 4 p.m. with COVID safety practices in place. Masks are required indoors. 
The Monroe County Public Library is continuing their hiking club this spring with a hike to Green's Bluff or the Bluebird Trailhead anytime. Nature is beckoning you to get out and hike and then share your observations and experiences with the group on Zoom from 2 to 3 p.m. every Sunday. Register at mcpl.info slash calendar. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report.